Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles, beloved, with me once again to the incredible Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brady and Diana for leading our dear flock in song and praise. And to draw your attention very briefly to the music ministry of Harrison Hills, I want to express how blessed we are with the excellence and the purity and the simplicity with which we are led in worship. You know, some may not realize what it takes and what is involved in bringing us the songs and the hymns that we sing. You know, some may think that we have a list of songs and they just pick a few out on the Lord's Day. But understand that it is so much more than that. We have many commands in Scripture regarding worship, regarding how it's accomplished, the manner of it and the content of it. And to be able to use most modern music or current songs requires a great deal of discernment. And sadly, the vast majority of what passes off today as modern worship are largely not focused on God, but on self. A pro tip, if a song talks more about us than it does about God, it's not a worship song. Count the number of me's and I's in a song sometimes, and you might be surprised. Turn on K-Love or your favorite Christian music station and listen to the words. They're by and large very self-centric. They're theologically shallow at best or heretical at worst. And unfortunately, the modern music industry is largely made up of individuals and church movements that espouse doctrines and practices that are antithetical to biblical truth. So it's not easy today for those who are involved in leading biblical worship. So if they have a song under consideration, the lyrics must first be what? They must be brought to bear under the light of Scripture. And that alone eliminates a vast number of modern songs. Now, we aren't talking about a Christian song you may just like to listen to in the car or at home. We're talking about leading and meeting the litmus test for corporate worship. We know that our songs and our hymns should be didactic. That means it should teach us something about God. It should show us something about God. And it is that knowledge that should raise our affections and our worship. It is our knowledge of God through reflection and meditation on the truths revealed in the lyrics that drive the adoration. That's where emotion is to come from in worship. We are humans with emotions, and that is a part of worship. But sadly, today, would be, in what would be termed modern worship, we find that emotion is to be ginned up through a hypnotic repetition of lyrics or music that's designed to elicit certain emotive responses. Well, there's a word for that. It's called manipulation. True worship doesn't need to be ginned up by musical techniques, beloved. The wonder and the awe, the emotional component of worship comes when we behold his beauty in the words before us, when our heart considers the greatness that are revealed in the lyrics, and we lift our praises. While it is all about him and our worship, he is so good to us, in that while we are pouring out of ourselves and praise unto him, In his grace toward us, as we are pouring out, the Holy Spirit is pouring back in to us. Refreshing the heart of the saints. Replenishing our stores. Building up our spirit man. So not only do our worship leaders have to approach the songs with discernment and carefulness. 
But now they consider the text for the day. What are we preaching? The songs and the hymns are meant to reinforce and orient us toward the text that we will preach. And indeed, that should make sense to us. What do we always refer to preaching as from this pulpit? It is called the apex of Christian worship, is it not? It's all intertwined. It's beautifully put together to draw our affections heavenward, to give glory and praise to God, and to begin orienting our minds and our hearts to receive the word. So we are grateful for our Levites, our worshipers. So when we sing, let us consider deeply the words, knowing that they are designed for such a purpose, to raise our affections and praise. Amen? Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we left off in our journey through Mark to tend to important matters of church and denominational life and indeed to the state of theology in the broader sphere of evangelicalism. I want to thank everybody once again for their incredible unity of spirit and the great Q&A session last week. I trust those in membership have read our important encouraging update that was sent out yesterday. The church marches on to the call of Christ our captain. Beloved, as we settle now in, let us reorient our minds back to the gospel of Mark. If you recall two weeks ago, we witnessed the only account of Jesus passing through Jericho. And it was here that Mark recorded for us the healing of a blind man, Bartimaeus. And it was such an amazing demonstration of Jesus' compassion on those that the world would discard. Someone who was thought cursed by their culture. We watched as Bartimaeus cried out and cried out all the louder for mercy from Jesus, son of David. And we saw the cry of a desperate faith. Indeed, a cry that stopped the second person of the Trinity in his tracks. We remember J.N. Darby reflected on this amazing statement as he wrote that Joshua once bade the sun stand still in the heavens. But here, the Lord of the sun and of the moon and of the heavens stands still at the bidding of a blind beggar. Close quote. One theologian compared the healing of Bartimaeus to the last ray of light as Jesus is reaching out in his public ministry, calling people to himself before the lights would begin to go out, before evil men can have their way. And Bartimaeus was made to see on the side of that road, and it had nothing to do with his eyes. That was just a bonus. We saw the regeneration of a man who would go on to follow Jesus on the road, and what a road it was going to be. It is the road that we find ourselves on this morning. Notice we did not say a road. This morning we are on the road. To be sure, the remarkable thing about the geography of Jericho is what it tells us about where we are heading. Recall we said that being in Jericho, Jesus had crossed the Jordan River from Perea into Judea, and he's now on the road that passes through Jericho, which is about 700 feet below sea level. Meaning what? It means that his presence in Jericho was Jesus' last stop prior to beginning his ascent into Jerusalem. Jesus would ascend, you may recall, over 3,000 feet from the very lowest at Jericho. Now every step forward is an ascent to the holy city. Because we're meant to see 
the inauguration. This is it. Jericho was the last stop. The Passover lamb is making the climb. He is making the ascent to be sacrificed. In fact, Jesus is now only 15 miles away from where he will give his life. And so it is this morning. Just as we are meant to see the inauguration of Jesus beginning his final climb from the depths of Jericho to the heights of Jerusalem, today Mark begins an inauguration with us as well. Today marks what begins the final week of Jesus' life. We begin today what is known as Passion Week. And we must pause on this moment to understand the gravity with which we inaugurate these final days. The plan from before Genesis 1-1 and expressed in the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel in Genesis 3-15, when God declared that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first gospel. Today the lights have gone dim and the curtain rises on the final act. In the eternal plan to save men. This in reality, beloved, is the point. Understand that Mark will dedicate a full one-third of his gospel to this final week. John spends a full half of his gospel on the final week. So let that gravity guide us as we embark on this journey together. Now I estimate that it will take us about five months or so to preach the final week of Jesus' life. I pray we are all changed by the end. If we immerse ourselves in the culmination of the plan of the ages, sitting here today as recipients of that grace, we will be changed. So to that end, our journey into Passion Week begins with what is often known as the triumphal entry. And yet you'll notice the title of our sermon series is not How to Sing Hosanna and Praise to a King. It's titled How to Miss a King. The title will become more clear as we delve into this tremendous beginning of Passion Week. And this is a scene that most are familiar with, but fewer may understand. We'll be looking at this event in two parts, and that will allow us ample time to set our scene, to explore our background, to see both the beauty and the tragedy that is contained as Jesus enters Jerusalem. So with that, beloved, let us look to our text this morning. Mark 11, 1 through 6. Mark 11, 1 through 6. And as they approached Jerusalem, at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them. And they gave them permission. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, as we embark on this journey of the Passion Week, we come as a dependent people, reliant on your Spirit, to illuminate this word that we might understand it to its fullness. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we approach your word, that the Holy Spirit would wield it in such a way that we will be forever changed. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those who heard our message last week on the state of theology will recall that the polling quest- one of the polling questions had to do with the immutability of God, asking if God changes and reacts to circumstances. And a large member of evangelicals affirmed that statement, that God is in fact learning and adapting right along with us. Of course, we looked at many scriptures that laid that to rest. We know that God's perfection and sovereignty require his immutability, and his immutability requires his perfection and his sovereignty. Our takeaway from that is that we serve a God who plans. A God that never had to default to plan B. We do not serve a reactionary God. God is not up there wringing his hands, wondering what we're going to do next. He knows. He knows all. Our ladies in their Women of Grace study on the attributes will tell you that this means God is also omniscient. He knows all. He sees all. He's planned it all. And he's not changing any of it. Now, nowhere is that planning and sovereignty more apparent than in the last week of our Savior's life. Nowhere do we see such perfection of a divine timetable. As our curtain rises on the final week, let us understand the context of our timing. This event, beloved, is occurring in the first month of the Jewish calendar. This is known as the month of Nisan. More specifically, this is occurring on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. Why does that matter? It means everything. This is Passover week. And most know from previous passages that this was the divine timetable by which Jesus would set his jaw like a flint toward Jerusalem. And there is much more to it than merely desiring to be in Jerusalem at Passover. We need to have our days lined up in our mind so we don't miss the incredible beauty of God's planning. Now, most church tradition calls Jesus' entry into Jerusalem Palm Sunday. They celebrate this on a Sunday as if it happened on a Sunday, and there are some stiff disagreements over timelines. To make the timeline fit to tradition, it's celebrated on a Sunday. However, the 10th of Nisan in that year was on a Monday. What is significant about the 10th day of Nisan? Well, if we look to Exodus 12, verse 3, no need to turn there, I'll read it for you. We see the Lord's command, tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. It was on the tenth day of Nisan that the lamb would be selected and brought into Jerusalem, where it would be watched over for four days during the Passover, being sacrificed that Friday. That leaves us with Jesus making this notable entry on a Monday. Now, I know we will never change tradition to call it Palm Monday. It doesn't quite have the same ring to it, but there it is. Now, certain traditions have tried to deal with the Sunday-Monday issue by adding in what they call Silent Wednesday, 
which you would need if Jesus came in on a Sunday. However, if the calendar is correct, we have no need for a silent Wednesday. The timeline flows quite nicely. I know John MacArthur got away with calling it Palm Monday, and he's not strung up as a heretic, so here we are. But that is looking forward in time. That's looking forward in our time and our context, but we're also able to look backwards in time to establish our days. So let us open with verse 1, beloved. Verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Excellent. Much to see here. All right, so geographically speaking, we have two villages in sight here that are going to require us to rotate our gospel diamond around a little bit to get a better view. So we see Bethphage, which means house of figs, and then we have Bethany, which means house of dates. It could also mean house of sorrow. But Bethany is located about two miles southeast of Jerusalem. Now, Bethany is significant for us. Why? Because it's home to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Their home is where Jesus would stay during Passion Week. We will see that demonstrated later in Mark 11, 11. What do we read? That Jesus entered in Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. So this is Jesus HQ for Passion Week. It's important to know that for a few reasons. Number one, it really helps with our timeline. Rabbi Gamaliel, we've talked about that big shot before, he allowed up to 2,000 cubits of travel that would be known as an allowable Sabbath day journey. Now for our A students, that's 0.57 miles for those doing the math. So Bethany was about three times the distance from Jerusalem, as was allowed. Not only that, but Bethany was about 1.24 miles from the nearest village to the east, which is En Shemesh. So when we think about timetables, if Jesus made the journey from Bethany on Saturday, as some surmise, from any nearby village, and certainly from Jericho, he would have violated a Sabbath day journey. He and all of those that were in the large group that were following him at this point. Well, that's not likely to happen. Thus, it seems best that Jesus would have journeyed to Bethany after the Sabbath, Saturday. Now, maybe he started walking after sundown into the following day, Sunday. But it is here Sunday that Jesus would have been given a warm welcome and greeted with dinner and guests. Now, here's where we see many things happen that we don't see recorded in Mark. But John 12, thankfully, gives us much more light. I'm going to read a selection from John 12 here to help bring the whole scene and timeline into focus. Listen from John 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him supper there. And Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary took a litra of perfume, a very costly pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Jesus Iscariot, one of his disciples who was going to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to take from what he put into it. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. 
Now listen, beloved. Then the large crowd from the Jews learned that he was there. And they came, not because of Jesus only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom they raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. Isn't that something? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Well, many of us know these stories, right? We all know these stories, but it's easy to get them confused in the timeline. So when here, especially with Mary anointing Jesus' feet, it is the very timeline that gives this anointing significance. Not only do we see this happening at the home in Bethany, but John gives us insight into the crowd as well. And this is critical. What do we see in John 12, 9? Then the large crowd from the Jews learned that he was there, and they came not because of Jesus only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Where are these Jews coming from? Two places mainly. One was right there in Bethany, of course. Do we think it might cause somewhat of a stir when you raise someone from the dead in a smallish village? And not just dead, but a we held your funeral and you were dead for four days kind of dead. And now he's here reclining at the table. Word was all around Bethany. But from where else is this crowd coming from? Where else? I want us to know, that the, I want us to know this crowd. I want us to follow this crowd all the way through our narrative of the triumphal entry. It's very instructive on how to miss a king. So where else? Talk about Jerusalem during this time. Had a population of about 70 to 80,000, approximately. Now during Passover week, guess what it swelled to? Around 2 million. 2 million. And we know this by historical Jewish records. Because we know how many lambs were sacrificed on that day. And it was one lamb per 10 people. We can do the math. Two million, just over. And what was the topic of conversation as people hustle and bustle down the narrow streets of Jerusalem? Well, regulars at HHBC know from previous messages the messianic fervor that permeated Jewish thought and speech, don't we? Looking for Messiah was real. It was prevalent. It was an any moment type of thing for them. Could it be him? Could it be him? We heard this guy out in the desert. Let's go check him out. Could it be him? They were always looking. In fact, that's why the Pharisees had their own little enclave that were tasked with examining Messianic claims because they were all over. But now Jerusalem has swelled to two million for Passover. And just two miles away in Bethany is a bona fide miracle. Let's see what's going on. Let's get some eyewitness testimony and statements. And sure enough, there's Lazarus. I once was dead, now I'm alive. Here I am. And the crowd grew larger and larger. And this matters why. Well, up until this point, what would Jesus typically do concerning miracles in the crowd? Tell no one. Tell no one. But now... Bring it on. Bring it on. Why? Because the time has come. The time is here. It's now. It's ready. It will be this very crowd and the perceived danger they pose to people in power 
that will be the divine tool by which evil men will carry out the will of the Father. Isn't that something? Watch God's timing and plan. The raising of Lazarus long before would be the tool to gather the crowd which will cause the chief priest to contrive evil in their hearts to accomplish the will and the plan of the ages. Glory to God. God isn't three steps ahead. He's a million steps ahead. The lamb will be selected and brought in on the 10th day of Nisan. And so it shall be. The sacrificial lamb will be brought in and set apart on the 10th day. I want us to have this timeline in our minds. On Monday, Jesus would enter Jerusalem, palms waving, back to Bethany Monday night, return to Jerusalem on Tuesday, where Jesus would chase out the, cleanse the temple and drive out the money changers. That's when he curses the fig tree and he teaches on many more things. Then back to Mary and Martha and Lazarus's again. And Wednesday, Jesus begins stirring the pot again with the religious leaders of Israel. Judas is now planning his wickedness. That's all on Wednesday. And we'll see that Jesus also teaches his second coming, Mark 13, that day as well. All on a Wednesday. And Thursday, his disciples prepare for the Passover in the upper room. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's arrested and brought to trial. Friday, he was crucified. Saturday, he was in the grave. And Sunday, praise the Lord, he rose again. There's your next five months in a nutshell. Let us return back to our text if we're to have a prayer of getting through it here. Mark 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Now, we dare not skip by the importance of the Mount of Olives in biblical and redemptive history. Those of you who have been to Jerusalem know that the Mount of Olives is a ridge. It's a little under two miles long, 1.8 miles exactly. And it actually towers over Mount Zion, over Jerusalem, by over 200 feet. And it's called the Mount of Olives because it has a lot of olive trees on it. We have scores of biblical events that happened there and that will happen on this mount. Of course, we remember this mountain that was the, the path of David's retreat from Jerusalem to escape the pursuit of Absalom in 2 Samuel 15. It was here that Ezekiel witnessed the glory of God in Ezekiel 11. The Mount of Olives was where Solomon angered the Lord by erecting idols for his foreign wives to worship in 1 Kings 11. Of course, it would be on the Mount of Olives where Jesus would weep over the disobedience and the blindness of Jerusalem in Luke 19. Of course, not only would Jesus ascend back into heaven from the Mount of Olives, but when he returns, he'll come back the same way that we watched him go. And Mark includes this topographical monument because we need to make these connections and be thinking this way. Everything written in Scripture is there for a reason. God does not waste words. Back to our text, it says that Jesus sent two of his disciples. We're not told who. But while we're not told who, we do know a few lessons that these two apparently needed to learn. Jesus is about to make an odd request. And that's really helpful because everything about our Christian life to the world is going to look odd. Did you know that you are an oddity to the world? Did you know that Paul describes you as a peculiar person? If the world doesn't think you're mildly strange, you're probably hiding your light under a bushel. And look with me to verse 2, beloved. Verse 2. And said to them, go into the village opposite you, 
And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has yet ever sat. No one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Now hang on a minute. We know this story, right? It's familiar in our ears. But put yourself in their sandals for a second. You want us to go to the other village. You're saying we're going to find a colt there. And not just any colt, but a colt that no one's ever ridden on. And you want us to bring it to you. Right. Okay. This is an odd request. Think about it. Can we not also see the hand going up as well? Right, teacher? Question? Setting aside the odd request, no one is going to let us just come and take their donkey. And we know that that was either spoken of or it was thought because of Jesus' follow-up here in verse 3. Look at verse 3. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Fair question. You say the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. Well, get your suitcases, saints. This needs a lot of unpacking. Now, I, for one, was quite thankful that Jesus enlisted a donkey in his service. That means there's some hope for me. All right? These two verses seem simple enough. Simple enough. But they are positively loaded with doctrine, with theology, and prophecy. If we look to John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 6, he tells us these things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. Well, as we begin to consider this aspect of the cult, this young donkey, we find that this indeed would fall under things that were written of him. So where does this come from? Questions, why the donkey? What does it mean? What part does this play? And why can't anyone have ever ridden on it? So many questions. Well, first let's deal with the issue of prophecy here. We know that there are over 400 Old Testament prophecies dealing with the coming of Messiah. And a multitude of them surround the events of his torture, his death, and resurrection. And here we certainly have one of those. If we look to Zechariah 9.9, we see such a prophecy. And it reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just. And having salvation, lowly and riding upon a donkey and upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now I can hear the skeptic now, right? So Jesus knew Messiah was supposed to do this, so he simply did it. He's supposed to ride in on a colt, so he got a colt and he rode in on it. I could have done that. Do you think so? Beloved, there is a miracle here that is so often missed. I know we have a couple of farmers in our congregation what can you tell me about donkeys? They'll tell you that they are mean and that they are stubborn. So mean that even coyotes are scared of them. Wolves are scared of them. Now how about a colt, a young donkey that has never been ridden on? Question for you farmers out there. Can someone ride a new colt? No way. You want to talk about unruly and untrained, go sit on a young, never-been-sat-on donkey sometime and tell us what happens. I've got news for you. It would be funny to watch. A donkey must be broken in before it's usable in such a manner. And the fact that Jesus could walk in a kingly procession with a donkey that is unbroken is itself a miracle. 
And how does such a thing happen? Because the miracle, because the maker gets to dictate the terms. No less than the creator of this donkey will ride upon his back. And all things were created by him and for him, Paul tells the Colossians. It's a miracle that's easily missed. We don't just grab and ride a young, unbroken donkey. And thus we see in these verses prophecy being fulfilled. We see a miracle of being able to ride this young donkey. But why do that in the first place? Why not just get a donkey that's broken in? Well, it's very simple. Jewish law. Nobody sat on the king's horse or the animal set aside for the king. We see this principle in Numbers 19.2, in Deuteronomy 21.3. If an animal was to be used for sacred purposes, nothing could have written, written on it. No yoke or saddle could be put upon it. By asking for a colt that had never been ridden on, Jesus is saying, I am sacred. I am king. But I'm not going to ride in on a white stallion draped in golden armor. Why? Because my kingdom is not of this world. I will be honored. I will be lifted up. I will have all put under my feet. All will be given to me. But when it is done, it will be done in truth and in finality. And we will see that next week that those waving their palms to Jesus will have missed the king entirely. Jesus will ride atop a colt that all might be fulfilled. But this is no more what Jesus is owed than was the lowly stable that he was born in. We cannot miss the humility of Christ in this act. And it's not that a donkey itself is so demeaning as a show of humility. It's not necessarily. We see quite a few examples in the Old Testament of kings riding on donkeys. King Solomon and King David both rode on donkeys. You'll see that in 1 Kings 1. It's not the humility of the donkey necessarily. It's the greatness of the king. It's the worthiness of the king that makes it so humiliating. Yes, he will be on a colt. But what awaits him? How about a white horse? And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself will tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Are you a king? Pilate asked Jesus. Oh, I am. But my kingdom is not of this world. Nor is this procession on a donkey my coronation. How about we hang a sign, King of the Jews, atop his cross? The king stood before them, but they missed him entirely. Jesus' entire humility was defined. It was walked out, beloved, in not taking up what was rightfully his. Many of you recall about a year ago our teaching on the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. What was the heart of that temptation? 
It was not getting Jesus to do wrong per se. It was tempting Jesus to pick up and take up that which rightfully belonged to him. Claim what is rightfully owed to him as the son of God. And he'll never go to the cross. Because the path to the cross is a path of humiliation. And that will be inaugurated on a donkey. Back to our text again. Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. So that we might suck out all the marrow out of this exchange, what else do we see here? Plain as day, floating right on the top. It's easy pickings. How about the omniscience of Jesus? Omniscience meaning that Jesus is all-knowing. By the way of an attribute that our ladies at Women of Grace can tell you about from their study on Thursday nights, which you should be at. How does Jesus know that there will be a donkey there? Jesus is God. He knows all. What a simple and magnificent demonstration of this. No detail overlooked. All done with complete knowledge. All on a perfect timetable. Tell them the Lord has need of it. <laughs> Let me pause on that for a moment. The Lord has need of it. Beloved, what does the Lord need? Answer, nothing. That's the beauty of it. Alan Carr describes this quote as the paradox of our Lord's earthly life. He was rich, yet he became poor. Beloved, he owned all things, yet he possessed nothing. He created the stars, yet he had nowhere to lay his head. He fashioned everything out there from nothing, yet he had to borrow a boat from which to preach his gospel. He created every drop of water that exists in the world, yet he cried, I thirst, when he was dying on the cross. He created every tree, but he died on a borrowed cross. He created every rock, but he had to borrow a tomb in which to be buried. Our Savior used the clouds as his chariots, yet he had to borrow a donkey on which to ride. Behold the humility of our Savior. The Lord has need of it. Jesus needed that donkey about as much as someone with a white stallion needs a donkey. It's about as much as God needs us to accomplish his will in the world. He doesn't need us at all. But in love, he chooses to include us. He has chosen a donkey as the means to bring him into Jerusalem. And he has chosen us to be an instrument to carry the gospel. What a marvel that the Son of God should use such lowly means to accomplish his will and his purposes. Neither are worthy to carry such a message, nor such a king. Finally, in our last three verses... That it just happens that this all-knowing God said it would look just like he said. Verses 4 through 6, look with me, beloved. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door, outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission you know, I had to smile as I read 
skeptics scoff at this here that Jesus just planned this all ahead of time. He set it up beforehand. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He did set it up beforehand, before Genesis 1-1. Beloved, all is to plan. All is to plan. The one who formed the waters and the land, the, ones who the one who chose you from the foundation of the earth, the one who had this donkey be born on this day in this place to be ready to carry a king, why do we fret? Why do we be anxious? Zechariah 9, 9 told us that thy king cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. But they will not see the actual king before them. Though they will wave the palm branches, they will miss the king entirely. Let that not be said of any of us listening this morning. The king cometh. The king has come. And he is just. And he brings with him salvation. Throw yourself upon his mercy today. Come in repentance and faith and he will lift up your head. You'll no longer be called a slave of sin. You'll be called out as a son and a daughter of such a worthy king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled this morning. Lord, just as this colt that was no more worthy to carry you, Heavenly Father, that you have placed this treasure in an earthen vessel, that we might be emissaries and ambassadors of your gospel, entrusted to us. And who are we, Lord? But we are so grateful for you today. We are so grateful for your word. As we begin this journey toward the Passion Week, I pray that we will be eminently changed. In Jesus' mighty name.